Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. We are in Ohio this week. Ohio, the Buckeye State. We did a little bit of driving to get here, but we're here. Uh, when I think of Ohio, I think of presidents and that Lannenberger basket building. Oh, is that where it is? Yep. <laughs> okay. I just, I heard about it first when working mental health from a coworker who was obsessed and went and did the Lannenberger like bingo all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. She would like take bus trips to like go to these places and do the bingo. That's intense. Yeah. She was a little nuts. And then she's like, your mom might like it. Here, talk to her about it. So then I did. And she's like, oh, those things are too expensive. No, not doing it. No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. We're cheap in my family and proud of it. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the coworker that tried to exercise some of our um, residents what? at the group home. Yeah. She would like pray over them and be like, leave this, the body of this child of God. And like all this stuff, like shouting to the point where then other um, residents would come up to me and be like, can you tell her to keep it down, please? That seems problematic. It was bad because she thought that every mental disorder was demon possession. It's probably not somebody who should work in the mental health industry. No. And I mean, there was one resident that I had that I would say, yeah, it could possibly have been demon possession because when he would get really crazy he his eyes would go completely black what that's creepy yeah it was scary and then he'd start saying that he was jesus christ Hmm. so it was really kind of scary and he'd be really mean and nasty during that time and then he'd come back in later acting like nothing was wrong but he was schizophrenic so i mean oh yeah that's schizophrenia and those are delusions of grandeur and yeah. yeah well I do have something fun that we can get into before we get into my story. Oh, yeah. Tell me. Um, I, I like have fun. a list of last meals of death row inmates from <laughs> CBS News. Oh. So first there is Victor Fegger, Fegwar, F-E-G-U-E-R. I have no idea who he is. Yeah. Figaro? I don't know. No, not Figaro. It's not that opera. So he was put to death in Iowa by hanging at the age of 28. He was sentenced to death for kidnapping and murder. His last meal, he just requested a single olive with a pit in it. That's That would not be my choice. No, that's um, that's kind of super sad. It's very depressing. <laughs> Someone we know, John Wayne Gacy. So he was put to death in Illinois uh, by lethal injection at the age of 52. He was sentenced to death for rape and 33 counts of murder. He requested 12 fried shrimp, a bucket of original recipe KFC chicken, French fries, and a pound of strawberries. I mean, not for nothing, but you don't have to worry about cholesterol anymore, I guess. I think that's a, a pretty decent last meal. Yeah, yeah. Um, Timothy McVeigh. He was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection in Indiana at the age of 33 for 168 counts of murder. Uh, for his last meal, he requested two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream, which I might have to request as well if I was on death row, because it is one of my favorite ice creams. I mean, you got to do the good dessert, right? Exactly. Why not? I mean, you're not worried about your figure. That's for damn sure. Ricky Ray Rector, which, I mean, interesting name to say, but I don't know who he is either. Do you? mm So he was put to death in Arkansas by lethal injection at the age of 42, and he was sentenced to death for two counts of murder. His last meal, uh, he apparently was mentally incapacitated during the time during his time on death row. I don't know how it doesn't say, but uh, he requested steak, fried chicken, cherry Kool-Aid, and pecan pie. And he left the pecan pie because he said he was going to save it for later. <gasps> no! Yeah. <laughs> Ricky! Oh! And that's why maybe the death penalty should not be a thing. Eh, well... Steven Anderson. Name sounds familiar, but it's not ringing a bell for me. Do I you just, know? No, I just think Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. From The Matrix. <laughs> oh, okay. It's been a long time. Uh, he was put to death in California. Again, lethal injection, age of 49. He was sentenced to death for burglary, assault, and seven counts of murder and escaping from prison. He requested two grilled cheese sandwiches, a pint of cottage cheese, um, a hominy corn mixture, so grits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and peach pie, chocolate chip ice cream, and radishes. 
Okay, a little okay. sweet, little spicy. Take away the cottage cheese and radishes, and sure. <laughs> Ronnie Lee Gardner, put to death in Utah by firing squad. At the age of 49, he was sentenced to death for burglary, robbery, and two counts of murder. He requested steak, a lobster tail, apple pie, vanilla ice cream, and to eat it all while watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <laughs> I didn't know you could request I didn't like know a, that that was, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, that was a pretty good last meal, but also kudos for, you know, catching up on. Absolutely. Ted Bundy. One of the most notorious serial killers in America, of course. We all know Ted Bundy, and you know now he's played by Zac Efron in a movie that I thought was kind of shitty, but maybe you'd like it. What did you think? Did you see it? No, I didn't watch it. Oh, okay. It's, they spend too much time making him human, which, I mean, you know, and going into his love story with his girlfriend mm. rather than anything about his murders. It's just basically like, boy meets girl. Boy kills people off screen, which you never see. Boy goes to jail. He's still in love with girl. Girl is still in love with him. Mm. Then he escapes from prison twice. That's pretty yeah. much the movie. So anyway, Ted Bundy, we all know who he is. He died by electric chair, 43. Uh, he declined a special meal, so was given the traditional last meal, which is steak cooked medium rare, eggs over easy, hash browns, toast with butter and jelly, milk and juice. Hmm. Why milk and juice? Um, I don't know. It I mean, sounds like a pretty standard, like, uh, institutional meal, you know? Yeah. Because when they say juice, I'm imagining, like, orange juice. Or apple juice or something. It could be apple juice, but I'm really imagining orange juice. And between milk and orange juice, those are things that, like, kind of curdle in your stomach. They can, yeah. So it just sounds gross. But okay. Alan Lee Tiny Davis. Another killer with the nickname Tiny. <laughs> so this is not Joseph Metheny, guys. Not big, big 700-pound Tiny. He was put to death in Florida by electric chair at the age of 54 for robbery and three counts of murder. For his last meal, he requested lobster tail, fried potatoes, half a pound of fried shrimp, six ounces of fried clams, half a loaf of garlic bread, and 32 ounces of A&W root beer. Wow. I mean, that's pretty specific when you yes, want a certain brand. Yes, extremely specific. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Teresa Lewis. She was put to death in Virginia by lethal injection at the age of 41 for murder conspiracy and robbery her last meal she requested fried chicken peas with butter apple pie and a dr pepper i'm sensing a theme here it seems like fried chicken and steak are so very popular big, which i expected steak to be because that's yeah. supposed to be like a luxury meal you know yeah, what yeah. i mean like steak lobster i figured those uh, but then you know we got weird things like kool-aid and radishes <laughs> thrown in there okay this says Sacco and vanzetti vanzetti do you know who they are because yes. i don't know Sacco and Vanzetti were two Italian immigrants. That who, part was obvious, the Italian <laughs> part. <laughs> who were uh, anarchists in the 1920s, and they were essentially blamed for um, some crimes. I forget if they were murders or robberies in uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, I think, somewhere okay. in Massachusetts. And a lot of people have said in retrospect it seemed like they were kind of set up. It was oh, almost shit. like anti-immigrant fever, and yeah, they probably happened. didn't do the crimes, but they may have done other crimes. So okay. it's an interesting case. Um, they were sentenced to death in Massachusetts. So that part of your story mm -hmm. holds up, Nicole. Fact check um, and rely. By electric chair at the ages of 36 and 39, respectively. They were sentenced to death on two counts of murder. For their last meals, Sacco and Vanzetti requested soup, tea, meat, and toast. Just any meat. In 1977, the governor of Massachusetts issued a statement saying that they had been unfairly tried and convicted, and the case has been open ever since. Mm -hmm. That sucks. Ronnie Threadgill. That sounds familiar. I know. I know this name, but then again, I'm not connecting him with the murders. Uh, he was put to death in Texas by lethal injection. Ooh, that's a killing state. Mm-hmm. Um, at the age of 40, and he was sentenced to death for murder. His last meal was baked chicken, mashed potatoes with country gravy, vegetables, sweet peas, bread, tea, water, and punch. However, Texas abolished the last meal choice in 2011, so Threadgill was just given the same meal as everyone else in his unit. Oh, that's a bummer. I remember hearing that they had abolished the last meal thing, and I remember the reason why, too. Why? Someone ordered all this stuff that cost them thousands upon thousands of dollars, so they just were like, we're not doing this anymore. I mean, it costs a lot to kill a person. 
Exactly. And then on top of it, it's like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, Eden, what would you ask for for your last meal if you were ever convicted of a capital punishment crime? Well, Nicole, I hope to never be there. But I think I'd have to ask for some chocolate chip mint ice cream. Okay. Uh, I'd probably ask for probably a medium rare burger with um, like bacon jam, bacon jam. (laughs) I don't know. I never tried it, but probably like hot pepper jelly. Okay. And definitely fries that I want them to be like overdone. So they're nice and crispy. Mm. Very good. Or maybe a bacon and cheese omelet. I really don't know. It depends on what I'm in the mood for that day. (laughs) What would you have? Uh, I would probably order like some fresh oysters and probably crab. Some oh kind yeah, of, mm. some kind of soup. Probably whatever soup struck my fancy. Maybe ramen. Ramen, okay. Uh, not top ramen, like fancy. I know you fa- fancy bitch ramen fancy that bitch costs ramen. a lot of money. At least ten dollars a bowl. And uh, if I had to pick a dessert. Oh, bananas foster 100%. You love your bananas. I do. Really I love do. bananas. And bananas on fire with rum and caramel is like the best. Why can't I think of his name right now? Famous cannibal. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> I'm like, there's a lot of them, but. The most famous one. I want to see what his last meal was. Okay, let's see. Um, his final meal happened right before he was beaten to death by a fellow prisoner. Okay, well, that's interesting. Um, the last thing he ate was hard-boiled eggs, some toast, some cereal, and a coffee. Here I was, like, thinking to myself, like, raw meat and... <laughs> mm, nope. Nope. He does have an Ohio connection, though. Oh, what is that? Uh, his family lived there for a while in the 60s, so he spent some of his uh, earlier formative years there. All right. So aside from Jeffrey Dahmer and his Ohio connection, I did find some interesting things about Ohio. All right. Aside from all the presidents, it's given us seven. Seven, wow. Seven to date, yeah. So I think it's like Ohio and Virginia are like the presidential states. Definitely Virginia. Ohio has actually been pretty interesting in terms of innovations, too. It boasted America's first traffic light, which was installed in August of 1914. That's cool. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the pop top can was invented by an Ohioan. But named, like, like a soda can? Yeah, like a soda can. Like okay. where you just, instead of needing like that little oh, that thing. can opener yeah. to, to pull back the can, you could just pop it. That was invented by, oh man, he has quite the name, Ermel Fraze. Okay. Yeah. He invented that in Kittering, Ohio. Uh, the cast register was invented in Ohio in 1879 to stop patrons from stealing profits from a store wow (laughs) wow okay uh what else akron was the first city to use police cars oh uh cincinnati was the first professional city fire department in the country as opposed to being all volunteer um and of course cleveland is home to the rock and roll hall of fame that is very true I've never been there. I have never been there either, but I would like to go. Cleveland always seems like a cool city. Yeah, I would. I would totally love to spend like seventy-two hours in Cleveland. Yeah, like everyone that I've known that's been there has liked it. I mean, according to the Drew Carey sh- show, I will like it. Cleveland rocks. Yes, yeah. Cleveland rocks. <laughs> so, Eden, you have a true crime story for us today. I do. My story for this week is actually a pretty fresh one which i try to stay away from but i was interested in this i found it really interesting and i really just was strapped for time this week so i hope everyone will still enjoy it uh it takes place in waynesville ohio which is a village in wayne township and is pretty small at less than three thousand people and it's only about three square miles with wayne township itself being about 46 square miles but made up of smaller things okay This is an especially small town, if you believe Twin Peaks, with its population of (laughs) 51,201. The town is not known for much other than hosting sauerkraut festival and for being a good place to go antiquing. Wikipedia also seemed to be obsessed with the statistics on its public library, even telling me year by year how many books it lent out. So I don't understand, but Probably because the library wrote the Wikipedia entry. Probably. (laughs) However, this story certainly isn't about books, except maybe throwing the book at our murderers. 
or at least one of them, but we'll get to that much later. This story is of Justin Beck, or Back, sorry, Justin Back. Hmm. Justin Back was born on February 13th, 1995. From an early age, Justin had an interest in joining the armed forces. His parents described him as a kind, friendly child. You have no idea how hard it was to Google search his name <laughs> because combining Justin and back, what do you think of? Mm-hmm. Justin Timberlake bringing sexy back. Mm-hmm. That's all I kept getting when typing in Justin back. <laughs> in middle school, he became friends with two other kids who would grow up to be his murderers. Oh. Because guess what, guys? You're more likely to be killed by someone you know than someone you don't know. Like, by a lot. I'm looking at you, Eden. Yeah, I know. Right, Nicole? You're going to kill me for my fortune. And your cat. <laughs> the fortune that I don't have. And my cat, yes. <laughs> I actually was talking to Salem earlier today when I was telling him you're going to be over here. I was like, she wants to take you away from me. Yes, she does. Because she doesn't know what a shithead you are when no one else is around. He's so cute. I'll catnap, catnap him any day. <laughs> um, so they had a falling out at the end of middle school or the beginning of high school. And that may have been where the following events began to slowly unfold. Wait, so who are his two friends? I'm sorry, I missed that part. Oh, I didn't say their names yet. Oh. But I'm about to. Oh, okay. So cool. there you go. I didn't miss anything. It you turns didn't out. miss anything. You've been paying perfect attention. So the two boys were Austin Myers, born January 4th, 1995, and Timothy Mosley, born October 11th, 1994. One day, according to a statement later made by Timothy Mosley, Austin Myers asked him one day if he was interested in making some extra money, and they decided the best way to do this, being dumb kids, was to rob someone. So, you know, that's just how we do things. <laughs> uh, they debated on whether or not to rob a drug dealer or Mark Cates, the stepfather of Justin Back. From being friends with him in middle school, they knew that his stepdad had a safe with money and a gun inside. The two initially drove to Beck's home, but realized he was home at the time and decided against going in. Okay. On the way home, they realized what they were doing was wrong, and they all lived happily ever after. Oh, good. The end. I wish. Ugh. The two went back to the drawing board after this and tossed around some ideas on how to get the money. According to testimony, Austin came up with the idea to kill Beck and said, Strangulation by wire seems fun. So the um, two decided. No, it does not. No, it really it doesn't. Messy. I yeah, it's probably not the best idea. So the two decided the best course of action is to kill back, steal the safe, and make it look like he ran away with it. All in all, not a terrible plan if you have no soul. So they go out and Austin buys three feet of steel wire and two metal rope cleats. All the fixins for a garrote. A garrote is a tool used to strangle someone with. Uh, there's actually a serial killer whose trademark was killing his victims this way. I was going to cover him and still want to, but I think he was in New York and I had forgotten about it already because uh, that's when we before we had actually started. Gotcha. And we were just getting ideas for stuff. Yeah, I completely forgot about it by the time we got to New York. Anyway, it usually wraps around the person's neck and is twisted and twisted until you achieve the desired effect, which is, of course, death. The serial killer, whose name I am blanking on, in an interview was talking about the process and mentioned a time that he hurt his fingers using one because he pinched it in there. Ugh. Yeah. Boo-hoo. I yelled at my TV. I was like, come on. <laughs> he, I think he was also the one that, like, when talking about one of his victims, who was like an eight-year-old girl or something, uh, he's like, and she was screaming, help, help, and trying to get away. I don't know why she would try to get away. What a monster. Are you freaking kidding me? Mm-mm. Like, that's why I wanted to cover him because he nope. was just such a weirdo like how can you have i mean okay so sociopathy but how could you not have any understanding of human emotion other than your own um speaking of sociopathy remember in our first episode we discussed extreme conduct disorder and i said i didn't know what it is Mm -hmm. found out oh yeah and i do remember learning it in child psych but as much as i thought i would love child psych i hated child psych (laughs) um it is actually because they can't diagnose children with sociopathy, so they diagnose them with conduct disorder. Oh. So it is the precursor, pretty much. Interesting. Yeah. So someone with conduct disorder 
won't necessarily grow up to be a sociopath, but the chances are pretty damn good. So that's what that is. Um, on the morning of January 28th, 2014, the boys went out and bought septic enzymes, ammonia, septic tank cleaner, and rubber gloves because safety always comes first. <laughs> I bet you can't guess the reason they would buy stuff like that, can you? Definitely not to dissolve a body. No, no, not at all. Around 1 p.m., they arrive at the back home. Austin was supposed to distract Justin while Timothy strangled him. So Timothy Mosley went armed with the garage and a pocket knife for that little extra something. Also, we aren't just talking about the legal kind either. This baby was like six inches long. Now, that's just Pennsylvania that they have to be like three or four inches or less. Mm Mm-hmm. Ohio might have different state laws. I don't know. I think most states are like three, three, four or three inches less. Something like that, yeah. Because after that, it becomes like a hunting knife Absolutely. or like a actual like, I mean, I guess kitchen knives are different. But, but... you would kind of need like a concealed carry permit or something mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. They go and they knock on the door and are let in by back who thought maybe they just wanted to try to be friends again and hang out. And they did that for a little bit uh, when Justin ends up entering the kitchen. The two ended up tag-teaming him with Timothy strangling him from behind as Austin held him in front. Luckily, Justin was able to fight back. Like I said before, he had an interest in the armed forces and was actually planning on joining the Navy, so I would assume that he would know how to fight. Yeah, he'd probably be into things like, maybe not ROTC, because that's that's like the Army. That's Army, yeah. Still, I'd imagine he'd be pretty physically fit and also, you know, aware of self-defense methods. Yeah. I mean, I saw pictures of him, and he looked thin, but I mean... He had a shirt on, so who knows what was under that. Yeah. He could have been, like, you know, ripped underneath. There's always, like, skinny, wiry guys who oh, are yeah. just, like, incredibly strong. You're always yep. like, oh, my God, you can lift that. I, wow. I had a friend who was way shorter than I am, and uh, he was very, very, very skinny, yet he could lift me up and, like, bend backwards and still, like, hold me. I don't understand how. All muscles. I always hate when people try to pick me up. I don't know why they try to pick me up. Because <laughs> you're not they a child. They always do. This one really <laughs> muscly guy the one time that was dating my one friend Pick me up under one arm. <laughs> I'm not a small person. I don't understand. It's not like you're short either. I know. <laughs> hey there, buddy. Scoop. Exactly. Like, what is it? What is it with me that says, please pick me up? I guess you just have that scoopable kind of face. I, I must. I'm like a newborn kitten. Um, <laughs> where the hell were we? Oh, the boys had the tag team, Justin. Oh, that's right. So I said about like, he probably fight because he uh, wanted to join the Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, So he fights back, and all three men fall to the floor in the kitchen. This is when they notice that the wire from the garage is around Justin's chin and not his neck, and Austin tells Timothy about it. This is when Timothy panics and takes out the pocket knife and just stabs Justin. Uh, Austin then places the garret around Justin Back's neck again, but I guess they weren't taking any chances, and Timothy Mosley stabs him in the chest. In the end, Back was stabbed 21 times and he died of his injuries. Oh my God. After the two had killed Justin, they go look for the safe and they find it in a closet, but it's locked, of course. Mm-hmm. He had previously told um, Timothy that, oh, he keeps it like, you know, propped open just a little bit. Mm. Not true. So it's locked. They can't get into it. I guess they didn't think that far ahead, but, you know, they take the safe along with them. And they also take Justin Back's body, which they wrap in a blanket and stuff into the trunk of Timothy's car. They go back and clean up the mess with the ammonia. Okay. They are able to find Kate, uh, the stepfather. Uh, They find his gun and take that too, loading it. They began to ransack the house and also took credit cards, jewelry, and things like that, along with some of Justin's clothes because the plan is still to make it look like this is his doing and that he ran away. Mm -hmm. All this took about an hour, and they were gone again by 2 p.m. They began driving for a bit before Mosley becomes paranoid and begins taking more secluded roads. They find a deserted area, and they pull over. They get out and check the car for blood. They pop the trunk and check on back. And when I say check on, what I really mean is they go through his pockets to get his wallet and steal his money, which is over $100 in his wallet. Mm. They get back in the car, 
and they drive to Mosley's house, where they change out of their murder attire and move the stuff from the car into the house. They go to Timothy's room and decide what to do with Justin's body, which is still in the trunk. Timothy recommends dumping him somewhere in West Alexandria, which is about 50 minutes away. He suggests this because he knows the area pretty well. So they drive to Gratis, which is 10 minutes outside West Alexandria, and they pull into a field where they hide Justin's body by a log and dump the septic enzymes on the body before shooting it twice for no reason. (laughs) They would have shot him a third time, but the gun jammed. So they do clear the, ju- the gun and they leave the bullet behind, which is then found by the cops later on. At this point, you think they just let it be and stop since this is what their initial plan was. Yep. Hide the body, steal the stuff, get gone. But Austin, being the genius that he is, decides he wants to go back and kill Justin's stepdad and then say that he disappeared after killing his stepson. I guess Timothy is marginally smarter than Austin because they decide after discussing it not to go through with the plan. Yeah, that doesn't seem very logical at all. Yeah. So Austin seems a bit bloodthirsty. Yeah. They drive another half an hour, uh, probably closer to home, but maybe farther away because they didn't really read the directions when they Googled how far away things were. Uh, They go to Brookville and dump Justin's laptop, which they had also taken. They buy a crowbar before returning to Mosley's house, and they break open the safe. Well, Karma is a bitch, because the safe isn't full of money like they had hoped, because they said it was supposed to be like $20,000 in the safe. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's a bunch of paperwork and stuff for the gun. Womp womp. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> like, they killed this, this viciously guy. killed this guy yeah. for paperwork for a gun they stole. Yep. Paperwork and gun parts. That's it. So they sort out what they want from the safe, and they burn the rest along with their clothes and the other bits of evidence of the crime and all this in the fire pit in the backyard. Okay. They drive to Tip City after this, which is another 45-minute drive, and they dump the safe in the river. While all this is going on, uh, Kate's ended up getting home at 3.30 that day. Um, Another source, I think it was Cincinnati.com, told me that... Uh, His mom got home first, but most of the sources said that his stepdad did. And he comes home around 3.30. He notices that the house was all out of sorts and that some rugs were gone and the table had been moved. He talks to his wife and they search the house and they notice that the gun and safe are also gone, as well as the jewelry, as well as other stuff. They called the police and reported the robbery and also tried calling Justin, but his cell phone was still at home. His mother had also tried contacting him earlier in the day, but he didn't answer. And at that point, she was just assuming that he was playing Skyrim. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, good excuse if you ask me, because I don't know if I'd answer the phone while playing Skyrim. He is busy. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I'd probably be really mad if I did answer the phone and I'd be like, I'm killing dragons. What do you want? (laughs) So um, they got information about a car. That was spotted outside the house. And they found out from Kate's that the car does indeed belong to Austin. And he had been at the house the day prior. Okay. So they already know that's who was there. They begin looking for the vehicle and the boys. And sure enough, they are picked up and brought in for questioning. This is where it gets kind of interesting. At first, they interview both boys. And both say that they know nothing about the robbery or the disappearance of Justin Back. But after returning them home, they go over everything again and decide to arrest them both and bring them back in for questioning since they did have other evidence of the crime, such as pictures of them purchasing the supplies and the makeshift murder weapon. They are also placed in two different interrogation rooms, but they're right next to each other. Austin is interviewed first, and he says that they were just going to hang out with Justin And he had no idea that Timothy was planning anything. And he tells this story about how Timothy just starts trying to strangle Justin with a garrote. And then he notices that it's around his chin and he stabs him five times with the pocket knife. He also said that Timothy entered the house with the gun and he was unaware of that he even had one. And that Tim suddenly said that it would be a good idea to make it look like a runaway. 
whoa. So he just like completely flips on. He's just saying, this is all Tim's idea. I was just there. I witnessed it, but I had nothing to do with it pretty wow. much. Mm-hmm. So in this story, there's no planning and Austin is oh so innocent. <laughs> what Austin didn't know, however, was that since the rooms are right next to each other, Timothy could hear everything in the room through the wall. Oh, snap. <laughs> yep. Um, as soon as I found that part, I was like, okay, this is this is the story I'm doing. <laughs> uh, so he heard absolutely everything. And when they go in to interrogate Timothy, obviously he's pissed now. Yeah. And he tells them that none of this was his idea. And Austin was the one that set everything up. He told him about the safe and the money. He was the one who said they should kill Justin back. So now you have that their stories aren't adding up. And it seems to be like... Tim is telling the truth and Austin is lying out his ass about everything. According to the law, you aren't allowed to use one person's confession against another person in court unless they testify against that person. So they have to offer Tim a deal at this point. Mm. Tim accepts the plea and is going to serve life in prison. So not a bad deal. He gets death penalty taken away, but he's still life in prison, which is shitty. You know, not a good place to be in. And these are pretty young guys too, mm-hmm. right? They're like, I'm, I'm assuming around like 1918. Yeah. yeah. Also, while all this is happening, the police have already found Justin's body uh, where they had left it. Mm. So they know where the body is. They have that as evidence now. After they talk to Tim, they go back to talk to Austin again. And as he had probably also heard everything through the walls, <laughs> <laughs> he began to change his story and tell the police that he did buy the things to make the grot and everything else, but did not help Tim kill Justin still. So we're still saying you're innocent on that count. The cops already know this is a bunch of bullshit. And since Tim agreed to testify, they just decided to take their chances in court. Fair enough. A trial begins for Austin Myers. And due to the evidence, along with the testimony of Timothy Mosley... The jury convicted him, and he was sentenced to death on October 17th, 2014. Due to the discrepancy in the sentencing between the two boys, this trial ended up getting a lot of media coverage, including some international coverage, which usually doesn't happen for a murder in a small town. No, definitely not. No. And it was covered by BBC. Oh. Yeah. Austin Myers actually became the youngest person on death row at only 19 years of age. Both Austin and Tim are being held in separate prisons with Austin at Chillicothe Correction Institution in Chillicothe, Ohio, and Tim being held at Ross Correctional Facility. And I'm sorry, Ohio, if I'm pronouncing Chillicothe wrong because I've never heard of it before. (laughs) I know I'm from Pennsylvania and we're neighbors, but I'm on the opposite side of the state and I've never been to Ohio. (laughs) David Fornshell, who prosecuted the crime thinks Austin Myers would probably have been a serial killer, and it was lucky that they caught him after his first victim. And I'd have to say that I agree with that statement a lot, judging from the premeditation, the lying, the throwing his partner under the bus, and the fact that he wanted to kill the stepdad as well. Yeah. Honestly, they didn't even have to kill back at all to get the safe. They could have just waited until no one was home, broken in, and taken the safe, or maybe even befriended Justin again and slept over one night, giving them time in the house alone when everyone else was sleeping. Agreed. There was other ways to go about it. Um, so, don't steal, don't murder. I'm not giving you ideas of how to do things. That's just me giving <laughs> suggestions of why they didn't have to kill you know, him, kill people. So, you know, I'm even if you're not Catholic, I think those are two of the Ten Commandments. They're still good commandments. Still go by those. Uh, Justin Back actually has a scholarship fund now as well um, that you can donate to if you want. You can find the information at the website rememberingjustin.net. Hmm. I also watched a video that because um, I was still looking for, you know, things for sources for the story. Right. And the one just ended up being like a picture slideshow that was like in memory of him. It was really sad. And they also played Good Riddance by Green Day, the one that people normally call Time of Your Life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was, it made me kind of laugh because back in like the late 90s, early 2000s, that was like everyone wanted that to be their like graduation song. Yeah. Yeah. 
that and that vitamin C song. Oh, no. Um, also, if you're wondering what Austin is up to in prison, he is still on death row uh, despite two failed attempts at trying to get his death sentence overturned. So he's tried twice. Dude, just deal with it. Yeah. You, you got caught. You fucked up. Yeah. You didn't have to do this at all. It was your choice. And it sucks because, you know, some people, they're like, oh, I made a mistake. But it wasn't a heat of a moment thing. This is premeditated freaking murder. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's the story of the murder of Justin Back. I really found this one interesting for several reasons. But the main two uh, was that the motive for the murder was robbery, but it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. It was like the robbery was a separate crime because they in no way had to kill him. My other main reason is because there was such controversy over the sentencing disparities. Honestly, I completely understand why they were different. Tim cooperated with the police and Austin lied. Austin was also the mastermind. Who knows if Tim would have been as forthcoming had it not been for being able to overhear Austin's interrogation. But life in prison is no cakewalk either, and I actually think that I'd probably prefer the death penalty if I was in that situation. I wouldn't want to live the rest of my life in prison. But there's always a chance. For parole? I'm not sure if he has the possibility of parole or not. It's fair, but at least, like, you know, you can kind of pay your debt to society, and you can still be product- a productive member of society in some limited capacity in That's prison. true, I guess. I do think it's interesting, though, that the cops had, like, their interrogation rooms back-to-back. I'm like, is that, like, I almost wonder if that's, like, a a strategy in some ways. It could be. Because now, because it used to just be, like, you know, tell me everything because your partner already confessed. You know, go in and tell them both that. But now you could actually hear (laughs) what was going on. Um, One of the videos that I watched, it was funny because it had, like, their interviews, their interrogations. Mm -hmm. And you could see them, like touching the wall like to the other room where they were or like Mm -hmm. knocking on it you know so that was interesting my sources for this week were wikipedia which i actually got a really good amount of information from they had a lot on this Uh, a clip from a bbc show called life and death row dayton 247now.com fox19.com daytondailynews.com and cincinnati.com Cool. So what'd you think? It was definitely interesting. Like you said, it's kind of interesting to realize that maybe this was the inception point for a burgeoning serial killer. Yeah. Because it is odd that, as you said, they could have very easily committed the robbery without... Without the murder. Yeah, without the murder. It wasn't a robbery gone wrong. They even went there and were like, no, let's not do it. And then go back and be like, okay, you know, let's just kill him. Like, it's... Yeah. Yeah, and it's also so unnerving that Austin also was like, you know what? Let's also go back let's and go kill back his and stepdad. Let's go back and kill his stepdad. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, very... Um, I mean, I guess we're fortunate that he was codependent enough to need to have Tim with him yes. to commit that crime. Yeah, like they were... When they were interrogating Tim after, you know, he'd heard everything that Austin said... Uh, the cop was kind of like, so he's like the brains and you're the you're the muscle. And Tim was like, yeah, pretty much. Mm. Like, because notice that Austin didn't actually kill him. Austin yeah. helped kill him, but he wasn't the one that actually killed him. Because uh, it was, you know. Tim doing the strangling. Tim doing the strangling. Tim doing the stabbing. So it seems like Austin wanted to control someone. Yeah. Wanted to be like, hey, he even gave him false information about the safe. So it seems like mm-hmm. there might be a little sociopathy there, too, with Austin. Yeah, for sure. For sure. From the pictures I've seen of him and from different things that I've seen in my research, it doesn't even seem like he's really repentant for what he's done. Mm. So who knows? Well, that's sad and tragic. Yeah. I'm glad that they're both in prison. Yeah. I feel really bad for his family because no mother should have to bury their child. True. True. On that happy note, maybe we should take a break. I guess so. I kind of need one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Royal Storage, we'll be back in a moment. Bye. And we are back. We're back. I had my break. I snuggled with Salem. That she did. And I also have a funny Salem story. Oh, really? Yes, for all the cat fans out there. Well, it's also kind of a funny mom story. (laughs) 
Also, you've noticed, Nicole, that I took the tunnel away before we started recording. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that way it didn't make a bunch of noise. No crinkle tunnel today. Um, but my mom bought him these things that are his favorite toys in the world. Uh, those little things, they look like like the Chinese finger traps yes. that you used to get. Yeah. Um, they're great. He loves them. And one day my mom's like, oh, I didn't realize this when we bought them. But they have these things, I guess, to keep it fresh inside them. Oh, I don't want him to get sick. I need to take all these out now. And um, one of them ended up coming out when I was home here. And I was like, oh, this must be the thing that mom's talking about. I grab it. I'm like, is this catnip? I think this is catnip. <laughs> I look on the packaging. It's catnip. <laughs> That's why he loves them so much. Yep. And I was like, I called her up. I'm like, mom, want to feel stupid? <laughs> and she's like, why? And I'm like, those things that you thought were dangerous, it's catnip. Just catnip. Thing that dad found that thought was drugs or a tea bag, that was what that was, and it was catnip. <laughs> oh, Salem. Alrighty. I guess you have a story. I do have a story. I always like that you come prepared. I try, I try. So the stop today for our paranormal story is in Cincinnati. Ooh. Which in my head I sometimes call Cincinnati because I think it sounds badass. Cincinnati. So Cincinnati is Ohio's largest metro area, even though it's not the capital. And it's the 29th largest city in America. What is the capital? Cleveland? Uh, Columbus. Colum- oh, Columbus. Columbus. It is Columbus. Yeah. You're right. Why are there so many C names? I guess they, they thought that the C name and the O sounded good together. Okay. Ohio people, write us. Why are there so <laughs> many C names? So Cincinnati sits along the Ohio-Kentucky border. And so it's pretty much at the bottom of the state. Okay. Uh, it's on the junction of the Licking and Ohio Rivers. Licking? Yep, the Licking River. Ooh. And it was settled way... Nasty. Yeah. <laughs> Hence, since a nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and it was settled way back in 1788. So it's an older city in Ohio. Uh, it's also a Midwestern economic hub and experienced a big boom in the 19th century. Okay. Now, during that time... The primary immigrants to the area were German settlers who founded much of the city's cultural institutions. Not surprising. Yeah. I did think it was interesting when I was reading about, like, the settlers who came out to Ohio where they talked about, like, at that time period in the 18th, 19th century, it would be, you know, Irish, German, Italian. But only the Germans had the wherewithal to, like, trek out to Ohio. Huh. Yeah, interesting, right? Which also was funny, too, in your story when they talk about the sauerkraut festival. I'm like, oh, it makes so much sense. It does. (laughs) Well, also, you think when you think of Amish people, you think of mostly Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. but then you do think of Ohio as well. Yeah. Because they do have some bit of an Amish population. That's true. They do. They do. And the Amish people normally are German. German. Yeah. So speaking of the city's cultural institutions, that's actually where we'll be stopping today at the Cincinnati Music Hall. Ooh, Okay. So the Cincinnati Music Hall was opened in 1878, and it was built with funds donated by Reuben R. Springer, who was a Cincinnati businessman of German descent. Surprise. Springer is definitely a very German mm-hmm. name. Springer offered the funds to build the music hall if the city matched his donation, and he was inspired after he attended a performance at the music hall's predecessor, which was called the Cincinnati Exhibition Hall. Okay. Lots of exhibitionists. In- indeed. Uh, well, it was the scandalous. It is nasty. <laughs> it was the 19th century, and like exhibitions were all the rage, uh, world fairs, things like that. And in Cincinnati, they had built a exhibition hall in 1870 to host the North American Sangerbund. And the Sangerbund, right. yeah, I was like Sangerbund. That sounds super German. That's as well. very German, yeah. And it was. It was a festival that featured ethnic German music. Okay, I was like Sanger. Kind of sounds like singer. Mm-hmm. Bund. I have no idea. Festival, I guess. Festival. Like fest. Okay. Yeah. And this exhibition hall featured a tin roof because it was basically sort of like this very simple building with a tin roof on it's it. It's my warehouse. Yes, essentially. AKA mini convection oven in the <laughs> summer. Now, according to local legend, Springer was attending a May 1875 festival uh, that was the performance of Wagner's Lohengrin opera when a thunderstorm dumped a bunch of rain onto the city. The rain echoed so loudly on the tin roof that the performance had to pause until the storm passed because oh, no one very could hear noisy. the music. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely had that experience where I've been in a building where it like, starts to rain, like yeah. a warehouse, oh, and you're yeah. like, oh my God, 
I can't hear myself no, think. it's nuts. So from that experience, Springer was like, you know what? I'm wealthy enough. I feel like our city is important enough to have a far better facility than this. So he donates some of his wealth to the city for a proper music hall, and construction begins in 1876. The Cincinnati Music Hall was designed by a leading Cincinnati architect, Samuel Hannaford, as a multi-use space for the community. The center of the building was designed for musical and stage performances, while the wings could be used for industrial exhibits. That's cool. Multifunctional. Yeah, really. It's very uh, forward-thinking as well. So the music hall was designed in this high Victorian Gothic fashion, and it's a really cool-looking building. It almost looks like a church made out of red bricks with these sandstone embellishments on the facade. I would imagine. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, The embellishments feature things like musical instruments and also industrial symbols like gears and hammers to kind of convey the multi-use of the space. Most Gothic buildings do end up kind of looking like churches. Very colorful, pretty churches. Yeah, very much has a church vibe. Because it's funny, we learned, um, well, because, you know, goth was big back when I was in like, you know, middle school and high school. And um, our teacher told us in history class when we were learning about the different types of architecture um, that she's like, no, gothic. When you think that, you think people that dress in black and wear eyeliner, (laughs) you know. Um, But she's like, that's not what it is. Gothic architecture is actually full of color and full of this, you know. And then she's like, Romanesque is the stuff that's dark and dreary. (laughs) Because it's based off the Romans who were boring. Boring ass people. So... Uh, the music hall, the main section of the building, it's called the Springer Auditorium, fittingly. And it's where the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, May Festival, Opera and Ballet Companies, and other production hold, productions will hold performances. The stage there has seen tons and tons of performances over the years since it's the main it, since it was a main stop for a lot of touring productions of theater shows and stage plays, and also musicians. Over the years, performers as diverse as Frank Sinatra, Johnny Cash, Ray Charles. Oh, wow. Yeah, the Velvet Underground, Sonny and Cher. You know what's really funny about the Velvet Underground is when I got Spotify, I finally broke down and got Spotify (laughs) one day, and it was like, name bands you like. So I did, and I picked stuff like Velvet Underground and Patti Smith. They decided to play the worst songs from both bands, (laughs) and it sucks because the bad songs from Velvet Underground are like 16 minutes long. Like a super deep cut. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought it was cool. Like, I'm like, oh, Velvet Underground, that like immediately attracted my attention as did Sonny and Cher, Janis Joplin, like the Grateful Dead have played there, Ella Fitzgerald. So it's like not just rock and... It's everyone. Yeah, Yeah, it's literally everyone. So the North Hall, which is one of the wings, is known as the Mechanical Hall. It's two stories high, so it can feature a larger industrial z- exhibit, so they can bring in like huge machinery, that sort of thing. They thought of everything. They did. They did. Uh, during the 1920s, the North Hall was renovated so that it could host sporting events, and they installed a 6,000-seat arena. So I saw a couple articles where they would host things like tennis tournaments there. Okay, yeah. Uh, today, the wing is primarily used for administrative offices, production space uh, production storage space and rehearsal space okay now the other wing of the building the south hall was originally known as the horticultural hall and it featured two levels let me guess flowers yes wow and How did a, i know that it's cool it had a glass roof oh okay like a greenhouse yeah it was a big huge greenhouse essentially um and they would do plant and landscape scape exhibits um it also was renovated in the 1920s and they installed a full roof, and on the second floor, they basically transformed it into a ballroom. So now, now when you're saying stuff about like horticulture and all this kind of stuff, I imagine that to be in more rural areas, and I certainly don't think of Cincinnati as being rural, you know? Fair, but it would, like, some of the things that they would host, there would be, like, exhibits, like, um, they would do, like, botanical societies, so you'd have, like, these things like orchid festivals and exotic flowers, kind of bringing plants that you wouldn't normally see in Ohio to Cincinnati. Okay. Uh, now, the ballroom that's there today on the second floor of the Horticulture Hall, it's a pretty popular space that they would use basically since the 1920s. It would host, like, you know, city dances, mixers, things like that. And it's still used today as a ballroom, 
and the remaining space on the first floor is used as offices for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, the Cincinnati Pops, and also the Cincinnati May Festival, which is a big German cultural festival they have every year. That's really cool. Yeah. Sounds beautiful, right? Yeah. I would go to the German festival. Me too. Me too. Totally. I want to eat some good food. (laughs) Hear some good, strong Teutonic music. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds beautiful, and it is a gorgeous building, but it's also built in a questionable area. Oh, I'm going to stop you for a second because you know what my favorite strong Teutonic music is? Du. Du hast. <laughs> du hast. <laughs> <laughs> Little Rammstein. <laughs> Rammstein Wagner. That's all I need. <laughs> so we joke a lot on this show about building on top of burial grounds a la Poltergeist. Oh, right? shit. Here we go. Yep, here we do go. It turns out that the lovely Cincinnati Music Hall was actually built over an 18th and 19th century potter's field. Oh, of course. They always are. (laughs) Potter's fields. I actually learned what potter's fields was from this podcast because I had never heard of it before. And then I learned it's like, oh, that's where people are just like, you don't have enough money or we don't know who the hell you are. You're getting put here. Exactly. Or if like you're a plague victim, they'll bury you there. So that's basically what the plot of land was used for before the music hall was built. I also read a little bit in my research that at certain points there were other buildings there and they were basically like hospitals slash sanitariums. Um, there was a really tremendously impactful cholera plague oh, in shit. the okay. early 1800s in Cincinnati and that's where people would be taken when they were sick with cholera and a lot of people who died there were buried there. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, pretty groovy. I always think of Potter's Field because I always think of the Philadelphia one. Oh, there's one in Philadelphia? There is one. In, it's in the far northeast, and we would always drive by it as kids to go visit our relatives. And I remember my parents mentoring Potter's Field, on, and it just looked like a field to me. Yeah. So you didn't really know what was going nope, on. Nope, did not know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that's what most people think when they build their buildings on it. Oh, yeah. look at this nice open space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wait, what? There's dead bodies. Ah, never mind. It's probably for the best. I didn't know what a Potter's Field was. Right. Was extra nightmare fuel. Anyway, so it's pretty well documented that this lot was either a public burial ground or a potter's field, and they have discovered human remains repeatedly over the years. And this usually happens anytime there's any kind of renovation performed on the building that requires excavation. And of course, that never results in hauntings either. Not at all. So most recently, and this was like, I was like, what? Um, They discovered bones, human bones, in 2016 when they did a renovation on the orchestra pit and in the north carriageway of the north wing, Basically, they were sampling the soil to see if there was any asbestos they had to worry about during cleanup, and they just stumbled upon all these bones. Oh, that's nice. Groovy. Did they call Temperance Brennan to come and <laughs> check them out? Well, actually, when they do find bones in the Cincinnati Music Hall, most of the bones end up at the University of Cincinnati in the anthropology department. Oh, okay. Yeah, so kind of. And kind fun of. fact, listeners, anthropology was something that I really, really wanted to go in until I learned that there's only like 65 working anthropologists in the United States. Yep. So Tough gig. not paying that much money, go to school for that long for no job afterwards. Tough gig. So clearly the music hall, all of the bones underneath the soil, kind of explains why it's a hotbed of paranormal activity. You um, think? Yeah. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Wow, I never would have guessed. <laughs> Um, It's been featured on various um, ghost hunting shows, including Ghost Hunters, which covered it in 2014. Um, A couple other shows I came across and watched clips of for for my research, and I'll get them a shout out. Probably Ghost Adventures. Yeah. Because if Zach can't yell at the ghosts, he's not living. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the paranormal things that have happened here. All right. Sock it to me. So visitors say that aside from like chills and the feeling of being watched, they also have experienced being like touched by invisible hands. Is it Della Reese? <laughs> touched by an angel. <gasps> I dig it. Um, they hear unknown voices or whispers. There's lots of mysterious footsteps heard throughout the building. And then music that has no apparent source is also heard pretty frequently. So almost like echoes of the past. Okay, yeah. There are some specific apparitions that have been reported. Uh, One that people have seen many times is a lady in a dirty white shroud, almost like the shroud she may have been buried in, who appears in the auditorium. Oh, shit. Okay. So folks have seen her floating along the stage or hovering over some of the box seats. 
They always describe her as being sort of surrounded by this misty, steamy looking cloud or air. Oh. But it's always very cold when she appears and it's almost like a cold steam is how one one person described it. All right. Well, that goes along with what a lot of people say about ghosts to begin with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Temperature changes. Uh, she's not the only one that's been spotted in the box seats, too. There's also, of course, one of my favorites, the apparition of a little boy. Oh, Yay! child ghosts. Hooray. Not terrifying at yeah. all. This little boy also appears in this, like, in the auditorium area in the box seats. He's been known to tug at people's clothing. He will kick or jump on the seats in the box area. Oh, those are the worst children to sit behind. Yes. <laughs> or in front of whatever direction you're sitting. And, of course, my favorite creepiest thing ever, he's been heard giggling throughout the box section. No. Nope. Nope. Mm-mm. That's a big nope. Mm-mm. So far, these ghosts sound similar to... Hauntings we've seen in other theaters that we've stopped at along the way. But the Cincinnati Music Hall also has a very unique and terrifying haunted space. Do tell. The elevator in the Corbett Tower at the center of the Music Hall. Now this elevator... I already don't like elevators. (laughs) You're not making this any better for me. So this elevator basically goes... It's in the Music Hall. It's in the center. And uh, if you ever look at the facade of the Cincinnati Music Hall, it has a very high tower... And that's where this elevator will take you to those upper floors. Now, during the 1980s, they needed to renovate the elevator because it was still pretty much the elevator that was installed way back in the 1920s. Let me guess. It was the 80s. They're going to make it glass. Uh, No, because it's internal. So, Oh, okay. But they did want to make it bigger because they wanted to be able to use it to haul like large pieces of scenery and equipment up to storage areas higher in the music hall. Makes sense. So during the first several days of digging, because they basically wanted to dig it out and expand it to make it about 15 by 15. So they're digging out this elevator shaft. And in the first couple days, like first week they're digging, they find over 215 pounds of human bones. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, they found 16 skulls, 60 femurs, which means that there is at least 30 people probably yeah. buried in this 15 by 15 foot area. That's wow. Right? It's like mass grave patered that's yeah and again all of these bones they found were taken eventually to the cincinnati university of cincinnati anthropological department so i guess they have a good place for them yeah maybe but yeah i was like flabbergasted like if that's just what you can find in the elevator shaft i can only imagine what else is under that building i would burn them i would burn them all (laughs) salt that ground girl salt it all so this led to a lot of paranormal activity within the elevator. Your favorite thing. Oh, yes. Do not ride the elevator, Eden. I do. I just don't like it, uh, <laughs> especially when it's like those older ones that seem kind of creaky or have that really... The gate? The closing? Oh, those. Yeah, I hate those too. <laughs> but like uh, the ones that like really either in the beginning or the end make you feel like you're dropping or coming to like an abrupt stop. Oh, yeah. The stabilization like locks yeah. you in with the brakes. Yeah. That's a little terrifying. I agree. So people who ride the elevator often experience angry whispering, like there's people fighting huh? Um, while they're like riding up in the elevator. But whisper fighting. Yeah, but whisper fighting. Kinda so they're like, still trying to be polite. Well, like angry mom fighting. Like, yes. I swear to God, so help me. So God. <laughs> we are not going home with ice cream. Do you understand? No, you cannot have that toy. I told you before. Hi, how are you? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, they also say that the elevator will just randomly move between floors when no one presses the buttons in the elevator or the call buttons on the other floors. Oh. Some people who have ridden the elevator have like, you know, walked in like you normally do, hit the button for your floor. And then as they're, they're riding up and the doors close, other buttons will randomly illuminate. Oh, that's a child ghost. Yeah. For Uh, sure. Yeah. (laughs) That's like some kind of mischievous poltergeist up in there. One time my nephew, who were actually pretty close in age, but, um, he, was riding the elevator with me in his apartment building uh, when he was little. And he decided to press all the buttons and then run into the elevator. So that way I was stuck on the elevator with all this. And an old lady came on afterwards and she's like, did you do this? Oh, well, this is just not acceptable. I can't believe you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, so you got I got in for trouble him. for what he did. That's funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, any more about the elevator? No, that that's it. The elevator is just a creepy, haunted place and angry whispers, and you might eventually get to your floor after buttons press. Eventually. Eventually. They just want to keep you in there longer to scare you more. Pretty much. <laughs> and uh, as you've mentioned in previous podcasts, like renovations, like oh yeah, stir up all kinds of sleepy spirits. 
Um, and this is true of the Cincinnati Music Hall. Anytime it's renovated, which has happened regularly throughout the 20th century, um, they recently completed a big reno uh, in 2016, 2017. All of the paranormal happenings just dramatically increase. All right, I could see that. And this has led to some very intriguing paranormal investigations. So there is a local group in Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Research Paranormal Studies Society, who have gone into the music hall repeatedly just to document any kind of paranormal activity they can find. They've captured some blurry ghosts on film as well as light orbs. The ghosts are odd because they're like definitely like almost look like burns in the image. Huh. Um, so I've, I've, I've never I don't frequently seen images like that yeah uh, i don't want to say i've never seen them but they're more rare i think yeah um, and of course the light orbs that everyone sees when your flash is turned up too high thanks ed warren <laughs> and um it was more lorraine i think but still <laughs> i need the best light <laughs> <laughs> um they actually captured some heat signatures and seats where no one had sat for several hours so they they went in like when there was no performances scheduled and certain seats throughout the auditorium would just have a heat signature that was pretty close to like a human a body human. temperature. I guess it's a good place to be a ghost, though. I mean, you have free entertainment yeah, every night. Exactly. You're not. You're definitely not alone. Yeah. Um, All your friends are there too. Yeah. Great. <laughs> they also got some pretty spooky uh, EVP recordings, uh, and they do post them on their website, which is cincyghosthunters.com. So you can go check them out. Um, their EVP recordings are at different points in the building. Some of them are from like the wings in the auditorium. They said there's a lot of activity there. They've captured a lot of images of unexplained like people or figures in the wings. Okay. Um, there's a couple EVP recordings where there will be like a tour guide talking and you just hear no, yes. Um, there was one that was particularly creepy that I listened to where um, one of the investigators was asking if the person was buried there and they said yes. They asked if they are a plague victim. They said no. And it was um, pretty spooky. That does sound spooky. They have a couple of uh, EVPs that they recorded in the basement of the music hall. And those are also spooky because you can hear someone saying help and hello, help, hello. Um, those are words that my old cat used to know. Help, hello. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they are very uh, interesting. They, they captured those. And those have all been in the past like 10 years. They've captured those. Oh, wow. Okay. Um. Now, the super cool thing about the Cincinnati Music Hall is that it totally embraces its spooky-ass heritage. That's good. Um, they are really upfront about the fact that, yes, they were built on a potter's field. Weird things have happened at the Music Hall. Uh, most of the, the haunting experiences people have had there have been pretty benign, so there's nothing really dangerous. And they open up the Music Hall for ghost tours pretty regularly. Oh, wow, that's cool. Um, See, I hate when people don't embrace it, and they're just like... No, what are you talking about? Nothing ever happens here as like, you know, there's a ghost going boo in the background. Yeah, I think it's awesome that they're like, yeah, you ghost investigators, come on in. We'll work with you to like book a night. Um, they do do some monthly ghost tours uh, and apparently they sell out like what? So if you're in Cincinnati or you're going to Cincinnati and you want to check out the Cincinnati ghost tours, book it early. Can, I will keep that in mind. Yeah, you can do that on their website. Um, so not only can you see amazing performances in the music hall, but you can also check out the behind-the-scenes action with the regular ghost tours. Yeah, that sounds cool. I think I would do it. Yeah, I, I would totally do it. One, because it's a cool-ass building. And it yeah. is, like, it's some of the pictures of the interior, it's just, like, these huge, like, ornate chandeliers and, like, pretty much, like, when you hear the word, like, opera house. Yeah. Or, like, that's what you picture. Like, that's pretty much what the Cincinnati Music Hall is like. And see, I love old theaters and opera houses and stuff like that because they're always beautiful. So that's my story for today. That was really cool. Yeah. I, I, I love that we actually found some place that was buried on top of bones. Or yeah. Like, ah, built on top of bones. Uh, my sources for this tale were Cincinnati.com. Hey, I used that one too. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Uh, friendsofmusichall.org. And that's the Cincinnati Music Hall website, which you can find out more about events that are coming up there, including their ghost tours. I did not use that one. <laughs> I should hope not. Uh, I watched a clip from America's Most Terrifying Places uh, that covered the Cincinnati Music Hall. Uh, it was a little cheesy, but it was interesting because they interviewed a lot of folks who had had experiences there. That's not the Linda Blair one, is it? I don't know. It was just a clip. Oh, no. That was, it was like on like Family Channel or whatever it was at the time. I kind of remember that. And it was like... Um, Your host, Linda Blair. Yeah. Uh, scariest Places on Earth or something mm. that was called. 
Yes, this is America's most terrifying places. Uh, CincinnatiMagazine.com and WPCO.com, ABC, Channel 9, Cincinnati. Ooh. Yeah. All right. I think that was pretty cool. Um, I would definitely go there, hang out with all the ghosts. <laughs> Not ride the elevator, though, probably. I'll take the stairs. Thank to. you very much. In case of emergency, every day is an emergency with that elevator. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's it for this week, I guess, guys. I guess so. Uh, if you would like to catch up on our past episodes or shoot us an email or check out our scrapbook that we are keeping for our journey, you can check it out at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Um, you can email us if you'd like to get in touch. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Don't even hesitate. Please talk to us because we're getting kind of lonely and we feel like you don't love us anymore. So please email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You could also reach out and share your love on social media. We're available on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show and on Twitter at Roadside Horror. Uh, we'd also like to thank E. Massey for our intro and outro music. And also we would like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our amazing logo. All right, Roadsters, until next time. Creep on, creeping on. Creepin on.